0: Okay, well, if you have your Bible, I invite you to go ahead and open it up, turn it on to Genesis chapter 1, in the very beginning, the very beginning of the Bible, page 1 in your paper Bible, landing page 1 in your Bible app. Today, like I said, we're kicking off a brand new Bible study series that we're going to be in for the next six months, all in the book of Genesis, all the way until the end of May, all the way until Memorial Day weekend 2021 four, which is a long time. Uh, why are we spending six months in the book of Genesis? I mean, for crying out loud, no series is ever like six months long. I mean, the Netflix show that you're watching is less than six months long. Um, the NFL season is less than six months long. If you're in grad school, which you're not in grad school, but we thought that you were, it's less than six months long. Alex McCullough, what's up, my man? Um, why are we kicking off a a series that's six months long in Genesis. Uh, here's why, because there might not be a more important book of the Bible than Genesis. And what I mean by that is you might be thinking, well, that sounds a little bit maybe heretical to say or inadequate," because... All books of the Bible are equally God's word. So why is one book more important than the other? And I I totally hear you out, sympathize with that. No, one book of the Bible is not more of God's word than another book of the Bible. However, uh, I will say this though, Genesis is the book that every other book of the Bible stands on and is supported by. So that's why Genesis is so important. So think of the book of Genesis kind of like a foundation to a building, That's essentially what Genesis is to the rest of the Bible. Genesis is the steel anchors that go all the way down to the bedrock. Genesis is that cornerstone that sets everything else into alignment. Genesis is that framework that shows how everything is architected and put together. Genesis is that concrete slab that finds uh, firm support for everything else that's going to be built upon it. And you know this, without a foundation, you don't have a house or at least one that may even make sense to live in. And similarly, without the book of Genesis, you don't really have the rest of the Bible or at least one that even makes sense. So if we don't get the foundation solid and right first, everything else in the Christian life is going to be off base. It's going to be off kilter. It's going to feel a little bit shaky, which means you could even make this argument that all of our issues and all of our problems as a culture, as a church, as individuals, all of them can be traced back to where we don't get Genesis right or we don't live rightly in light of it. So how we think about God, for example, who he is, how he is, can we know him if we can, all that's in Genesis. How we think about science and morality and philosophy, it's all in Genesis. How we think about environmentalism or climate change or the carbon footprint, it's all in Genesis. How we think about gender and sexuality and family, it's all in Genesis. How we think about abortion and even gun control, it's all in Genesis. How we think about the government and the state, politics, corrupt or checked, it's all in Genesis. How we think about law and order, police and court systems, it's all in Genesis. How we think about our day-to-day life and the jobs that we have, our calling, our work, it's all in Genesis. How we understand sin and brokenness and, and even conflict in the Middle East and Hamas, it's all in Genesis. How we think about sorrow and hope, suffering, even the idea of a Messiah, it's in all in Genesis. How we think about the end times, it's all in Genesis. All of life's questions, philosophically, existentially, theologically, politically, they ultimately find their way all back to Genesis. It's kind of like streams that kind of make their way all back to the ocean. Same way with Genesis. This is why Genesis is so important. This is why we're going to be spending the next six months in it. So it's a quick overview before we dive into those famous words of in the beginning, God. The book Genesis, the name Genesis means beginning. Genesis means beginning. It is 50 chapters long, this book is, and it is for the first 2,000 years of human history. So it covers a lot of time. It's written by Moses and it is a book of firsts. It's a book about God's first work, the first humans, the first family, the first jobs, the first relationships, the first commandments and promises, the first tragedy, the first rebellion, the first problem, the first home, the first nations. It is a book of origins and origin stories are so important. And here's why, because how we begin is the most important thing that we can ever do. How we begin is the most important thing that we can ever do. Thinking about everything else, how we think about the very beginning is the very beginning of how we think about everything else think about it that way. And an origin story is not merely just this attempt to explain or to theorize what happened way back then. It is much, much more than that. It is essentially, whether you realize it or not, origin stories are the lenses that we wear for how we see and make sense of life and how we live it out. Everyone thinks about the beginning. Everybody does. And it impacts everything else, whether we realize it or not. An entire civilization... Every civilization through all of human history, they've all had a origin story that that creates their value system and what makes sense to them and how they live their, their life and how they operate their society. Every person, religious or not, whether they know, have a crystallized form of thinking about the beginnings or not, they have an origin story and an idea and a conviction about the beginning and everyone's origin story, it sets the foundation for everything else, who they are. What, how they value things, how they live, and where they're heading. Let me give you a couple examples of this, just civilization-wise, just to show how origin stories set the framework for everything else. The Babylonians, for example. We're going to do a quick run through, uh, through history. The Babylonians, they believe uh, in the Enuma Elish. That's their creation story. And the creation story that they have is the idea that the gods were warring with one another in the heavens. And the greater, more powerful god, Marduk, conquered all the lesser gods and then use their corpse and their blood to carve out the world's mountains, rivers, plains, and the first human beings. So the groundwork of the universe, according to Babylonians, is that the greater should conquer the lesser and bring about order and power. And if you know anything about the Babylonians, that that story fits their moral code and their cultural ethos. Everything is seen in terms of power. The Aztecs and the Mayans, for example, another long-term ancient uh, civilization they believe that everything was created not through the gods warring with one another but rather it was just divine jealousy between four main gods who are all siblings so these siblings they're all vying for power over one another and they're driven by greed and sexuality and and violence and there's just always this tug of war between the four trying to get the bigger piece of the pie and essentially that is how the world came to be out of their disagreements out of their battles out of the bloodshed and immorality the moon and the stars and the earth and humanity were all created. So at the very, at the very basis of their foundational philosophy is this idea that the ends justify the means. And really you just kind of take your bigger piece of the pie and you hope that, you know, it works out for you. So everything in the Aztec and Mayan philosophy was seen in terms of the haves and the have nots and becoming a have and not a have notter And we see that same ethos running through our culture as well with with Marxism. Same kind of uh, ideology. Hindus, for example, they believe in the beginning uh, that the beginning was created by three main gods, a god of life, death, and rebirth. And these three gods, they're not over and against one another. They're all equal, and they just kind of work together through their agreements and disagreements to create this basis of life that is a cycle of life, death, and rebirth. So life, according to Hinduism, is all ultimately about energy flow, how energy flows from one place to another place. And it's really just about keeping equilibrium and making sure that you're in a good space with good energy. And that's where good headspace comes from. That's kind of bleeds into how they view life and the purpose of all of life. There is no real designer. There is no real creator. There is no real moral code. It's just all about energy and of course that bleeds into and makes sense in light of what they believe about the end times which is there is no real end there's just reincarnation over and over and over again you just flow between different life forms see how the beginning affects even the very end for them agnostics or atheists all right just our fourth category they believe that creation happened without any divine intervention creation all happened through the big bang That there is only natural and material there is no supernatural Well, all right, just tease that out. If that's true, then what do you do if everything is just material? What do you do with non-material matters? Things like morality or finances or politics or family or education. See, if there is no design or design or purpose, then who gets the authority for those things? Well, naturally, the two entities that are most in control, the government and the individual, because there is no other place for authority. So what's the purpose of spotlighting all these different creation stories? Does it really matter who made the universe and why it was made and how it was made and how we, I mean, we're all here now, right? I mean, all those little details that happened thousands of years and maybe millions. Why does it really matter today? It matters. Absolutely. It matters completely. Even all the details because a creation story and all of its details, it serves as the ideological foundation and the existential template for how we understand life and live it. So you give me someone's creation story and I'll tell you their entire theology. You give me someone's creation story and I'll tell you their entire moral compass. You tell me a a, a culture's origin story about the beginnings and I'll tell you exactly where that culture is headed and what they struggle with and what they prize. A creation story is of chief importance because everything flows downstream from it. And I mean everything. That is just how important the creation story is. Again, how we think about the very beginning is the very beginning of how we think about everything else. So with that being said, let's begin at the Bible's very beginning. I'm going to be reading the entire chapter one today. And as a disclaimer, there is so much here. But just for the sake of time, I'm going to touch on three main characteristics that we can kind of divide this chapter one into. So if you're taking notes, this is going to be your your, uh, rough outline. We're going to see the foundations. We're going to see the distinctions. And we're going to see the separations. Okay, so I'm reading from the ESV translation. Here's how it begins at the very beginning. Verse one. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that they were so that, so that were under the expanse from the waters and that were above the expanse. And it was so, and God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day, verse nine. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so God called the dry land earth. And the waters that were gathered together, he called seas and God saw that it was good. Okay, we're going to pause right there. Uh, What we see is an emphasis first on foundations, the foundations of our reality. So number one, the foundations. First, we can see the first foundation of reality. It is the foundation of there is creator and there is creation. Creator and creation. Verse one opens with the very first foundation with the famous statement in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay. Only one verse in, and God gives us the three most basic building blocks of our reality. We see time, space, and matter. Our reality is built on time, space, and matter. You have in the beginning, time. God created the heavens, space, and the earth, matter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, time, space, matter, all into existence. So right there, we're given the nature of God in relation to everything else. That means that God exists outside of time, space and matter, and He caused those things to, in, uh, to come into existence. So time, space and matter, they did not just come into being on their own accord. Um, time, space and matter did not just always exist. I mean, science can prove that. They know that there was an inception. Uh, scientifically, and they know that there is movement still happening from that place of inception. The universe is continuing to expand with light and with space. So, something created that which everything is, and it's continuing to go. So, God created something out of nothing. He's the causer who caused that effect of the universe. Have you ever heard uh, someone ask this question, by the way? Um, well, if, if God created everything, then who created God? you ever heard someone ask that question? Okay. That question is conceptually flawed. And here's why it presupposes a definition for God that is not God. Okay. It presupposes that God exists in time, space, and matter, and therefore is dependent upon time, space, and matter, and therefore works like everything else works in our dimension of time, space, and matter. But that definition of God being dependent upon time, space, and matter is not God. By definition, God means existing outside of our context of time, space, and matter, not being dependent upon it, but creating it. So he is not a created being. He is the one who was not created and he's the creator who caused everything else to become created, okay? So that's the very first foundation underneath all the others. There is creator and everything else is creation. Now, verse two, we see moved on from that. We see something about the nature and the character of God, who this creator actually is. This is uh, This is what it says. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Okay, so from the beginning, we already see evidence of what the Bible would give more clarity about later, which is that God is a triune God. He's God one in three, three in one. And we can already uh, kind of infer from this passage about God. We can learn about him that he exists, this God, this creator, he exists in perfect community with a purposeful unity All the way from past eternity. There's perfect community and there's purposeful unity all from all eternity. And this is what makes Christianity categorically unique from all other religions and worldviews, even the ones that I just mentioned, at the very foundation, this Godhead of Christianity, it works together. It doesn't work in competition, it doesn't work in jealousy or greed, it doesn't work together to create via battle unlike other deities from other creation accounts, right? Hindus believe, I didn't touch on this earlier, but they believe that one of those three gods, life, death, and rebirth was lonely. And so out of his loneliness tore himself apart and out of his tearing himself apart, he created man and woman. So God, the Hindu God created out of a sense of loneliness. Christianity believes that God created out of a sense of oneness, out of love, not for love, but out of love they created. Babylonians and Aztecs believed that the gods were conquering one another through war, and that's how they created. Christianity believes that God created out of a creative, sovereign will. It was planned. It was, it wasn't, there wasn't bloodshed. There wasn't battle. There wasn't a disarray that started everything else. There was unity. Secular, non-religious people, they believed that everything came from nothing. There is no, nothing else but an impersonal, chaotic force at the very foundation of our universe. Christianity would say the exact opposite of that, that the very foundation of the universe is not impersonal. It's deeply personal and not even deeply personal. It's relational. There's a relationship already at the foundation of the universe, God with himself. It's not chaotic. It's deeply creative. It's purposeful. So at the very foundation, there is Genesis starts with creator and creation. Verse two shows us, Who this creator is, how he has, he works together and he works in perfect unity. And there's, there's a glory happening here. It's creating out of love, not for love. And then the next eight verses show us now more about creation, the nature of it at the very foundation. And what we see is something really important. I'm not going to read those uh, next eight verses again, but God creates the the foundations of our reality. Listen with binary distinctions. Okay. what, What do I mean by that? Well, look at verse one. You have God creates the heaven and earth. Verse 3 through 5, you see God creates light and darkness, day and night, morning and evening. You see verse 6 through 8, God creates water and sky, sky and water. Verse 9 and 10, God creates land and sea, sea and land. There's these binary distinctions. This is a very profound, important principle for how we think about the foundations of reality. Foundational realities are binary truths. Foundational realities are binary truths heaven and earth, light, darkness, day, night, atmosphere, substance, land, sea, creator, creation, spiritual material. We're going to see later male, female uh, through humanity and also through animals. Why did God create in this binary fashion? Here's why. Because with with two firm opposites, you can now have clarity and design and definition. See, without two firm opposites everything's just kind of foundationally unclear and undefined, and there's no real design with it. Think about it this way. The, the genius behind computers, okay, and how it works, how computers work, which are infinitely complex, it works in the same way with binary realities. At The very basic code, right, behind everything else in the infinitely complex world of computers, the very basic code operates with ones and zeros, zeros and ones, open, close, on, off. That's At the very basic level, computers have infinite levels of complexity, but at its most foundational level, it operates on basic binary reality. In the same way, God uses ones and zeros, zeros and ones of binary realities to build the most basic elements of an unbelievably complex creation, making, therefore, a reality that is foundationally organizable and clear and defined and designed and purposeful. Without those zeros and ones, there is no real meaning. Everything means nothing. Nothing means everything. There is no meaning or design or purpose. But with them, there is now the possibility of diversity and complexity, which we see next. So go to verse 11. We'll continue reading. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which, is in, which is their seed, each according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and morning the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and for years. And let them be, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Verse 16. and god said let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens so god created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind and god saw that it too was good verse 22 and god blessed them saying be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on earth and there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Okay. We're going to pause right there. So verse one through 10, it sets the foundations of reality. Now we see in the last passage I just read, what's built on those foundations. Now, just as a quick disclaimer, um, maybe this is on your mind already. If you were hoping that I was going to touch on how God created all this exactly and how long God created it for, whether God used evolutionary mechanisms or not, or whether the, the, the the day is representative of a thousand years or a million years or an era, or if it's a literal singular 24 hour day, um, not going to touch on that today. That's a conversation for another, to- uh, another time, another context. Uh, and if you're interested, we can talk about it. But we're only going to discuss what is there today and what may or may not be inferred uh, that has secondary meaning. And we're not going to touch on that anyway. But after the foundations, just wanted a quick disclaimer. Now we see the distinctions, the distinctions. This is number two in your notes, the distinctions. What we see after God builds the foundations in verses one and two in days or sorry, uh, in days one and two, is now he's building on that foundations on days three, four, five, and six. So he starts filling out that blueprint, if you will. He's filling out the canvas more and more. And here's the general timeline. Day three, God creates vegetation, specifically plants yielding seeds and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, essentially describing all vegetables, all fruits, all nuts. That's day three. So this is this produce of the earth. It's kind of like this perpetual natural feast. It's already prepared to serve a nutrient-rich diet for animals and humans. So everything that you can think of with uh, vegetables, fruits, and nuts, you have all the main categories of what it means to have a healthy diet. I know we haven't talked about meat yet, but there is protein even here. Uh, But what you see in day three is God is creating the world so that it keeps on creating and reproducing naturally. There's this built-in system of natural abundance and replenishing returns without us really having to do anything. We live in an abundant world. Day four, four, excuse me. God then creates the sun, moon, and stars. So this is going to be a perpetual kind of like natural light system to sustain all the processes of vegetation, Right, you have, we have an array of light even throughout the night to continue the processes of photosynthesis to keep this natural cycle of abundance going. All right. By the way, maybe you read that and you're like, hold on, that doesn't make sense. Does it sound peculiar to you that uh, God does it in this order? Like, how, why is day three all vegetation and plants and you know stuff like that, and then day four is sun, moon, and stars? Because doesn't the vegetation need the sun moon, and stars? In order to be like uh, a thing right? <laughs> like for photosynthesis to happen so why not do the sun noon, and stars first and then the vegetation uh, uh, to be honest I- i'm not really sure there could be some plausible explanations for this perhaps there was so much light uh, when god first created everything that the universe had enough of it like at-, at this very inception point to sustain earth's vegetation for a day or for however long it was that's plausible perhaps even god himself was the light source sustaining all vegetation just by his own being, that's a possibility too. Either way, on day three and day four, here's just the main idea here. God creates an array of distinctiveness with both vegetation and light. He's filling out the land and the sky with great diversity and great creativity with vegetation and different types of light. Day five, okay, day five, this is when God first makes creatures for the first time. Birds and fish. So he's filling out the blue spaces of the sky and sea. And then day six, then God creates land animals, the livestock, the creeping things, the beasts. I don't really know what it's referring to with creeping things. Um, But now they're all occupying the green spaces. So God is day by day filling out the canvas of creation more and more and more with more colors, with more activity, with more life, with more life forms. So he's filling it out more and more and more with diversity, types of light, types of creatures in the land, different types of vegetation, different types of animals. Uh, fish, birds, everything. But there's one commonality here that I want to touch on. This is very important. A commonality that runs through all this diversity. It's a common phrase repeated over and over and over again. Maybe you picked up on it. It was listed nine different times. I mean, it was the word or phrase, according to its kind, according to its kind, according to its kind. The emphasis of God's creation story is clear. God created many different types of types and subgroups, and variations, and forms, but they're all derived from basic prototypes. So here's here's the big principle of God's creation. Prototypes do not mix, but their variations can. Prototypes don't mix, but their variations can, meaning this. Fish can reproduce with fish to make more fish, and different types of fish can reproduce together to create even more different types of fish, and that's kind of how complexity and diversity uh, kind of perpetuates and continues to grow and grow and grow while we're still discovering a random fish in a part of the sea that we've never discovered before. It was probably, maybe it could be 50 or 100 years old. We don't, we don't even know. But fish and birds will not reproduce because reproduction will only happen according to its kind. That's the basic prototype. That's kind of the grain of the universe um, that God has instituted. Now, I think this tells us a very, very, very important truth. It's an important principle about how we should see reality. It is that God puts design and order first, then diversity and variation. God puts design and order first, and then variation and diversity second. This is a, a profound philosophical principle that God has encoded into the bedrock of reality. It's this idea that diversity without the foundation is chaos. But diversity with foundation is beauty. Okay. Diversity without the foundation is chaos. Diversity with the foundation is beauty. See, we live in a world that loves the word diversity, right? Like diversity, this diversity, that everything is diverse, but not diverse opinions. We don't like that. That's another conversation. All right. Um, but diversity, according to God is good. He loves diversity. Okay. Diversity is good. However, it's a diversity that has its its roots in his foundational realities first. So, for example, um, you know, just to uh, give you a hot topic, one that we talk about and we hear about a lot, gender and sexuality. Okay, God has given the foundation of binary, a foundation of binary to sexuality with male and female. The transgender movement, for example, it says that male and female do not exist. So they, they wipe out the foundation but they really pride themselves in diversity. They want a diversity of genders, as many genders as you possibly can. Gender doesn't exist, it's a social it's a social construct. There is no foundation of gender. So and they think that by removing what gender is, male and female, now they have more diversity, more expression, more genders, right? But logically, it's actually the opposite. See, logically, if you reject what gender is at the beginning, you don't recreate it however you like, when you take the meaning out, what you don't get is more meaning. Okay. So when you have 197 different gender options to choose from, that's not gender diversity. That's gender meaninglessness because you don't have foundations. So gender doesn't mean more by removing what it is. It means less. And this is why you have PhDs, for example, at places like Harvard and Yale who can't answer the basic questions. What is a woman? What is a man? And and here's the thing. They can't answer that question because they're actually being logically consistent in their own framework. There is no male and female. Well, then what is it? Well, it's nothing and everything and it's whatever you want it to be. And we don't really have an answer. It leads to absurdity because in that case, if you take out what the foundation of gender is, take out the foundations, everything is gender. Nothing is gender. There is no answer. It's all the answers. It doesn't mean anything. But see, God puts design and order first. That's how you know what something is and is not, with everything in life. And then there's diversity and variation second. Diversity without the foundations is chaos and it is meaninglessness. But on that same note of gender and sexuality, at the end of day six, God creates his most glorious creation next, someone to know him personally, two genders that that both uh, equally magnify the character and nature of God. And, and we see this in his creation of man and woman, regents to keep his creative work going. Let's go to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27. And note verse 27 in your Bibles, it is its own stanza. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. And you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And I'm actually going to also read the beginning of chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. And that is our passage for today. So number 3. Is the separation? So you have the foundations, verse one through ten. The rest of chapter one, or uh, middle way through day six, you have the distinctions, the complexity, the, the diversity. Excuse me. And now you have the separations with mankind. So God creates everything, and then He creates humanity. He creates humanity separate from, superior to the rest of creation. And God creates humanity separate from and superior to creation in three main ways. If you want to write this down, in our design in our purpose and in our work, in our design and our purpose and in our work. So first, when God creates humanity, he does so in a categorically different way than everything else. Verse 26 says, he made man in his own image and after his own likeness. See, this is uh, unique because in every other place in creation, God creates by way of his creative nature. He creates the first blueprint for a fish or a bird or a walrus. I don't know. He just creates things because that sound cool. And it came into his creative mind and it never existed before. But when God creates mankind, he creates not out of his creative nature as much, but also with his personal nature, using his own image and likeness as the blueprint. This wasn't a new blueprint that had to be made. He, he pulled from himself. That's why and how humanity is created above and beyond the rest of the creative realm, because we're fundamentally different. He's woven himself into us. That, that, he has, doesn't, that he didn't do with anything else. This is also an important truth about what we think of, what the Bible thinks of when it, when it considers humanity. So what the Bible says is that we are not just exclusively material, nor are we exclusively spiritual. We're actually 100% both. We are material and we are spiritual. We are not a soul trapped in a body. We are a body soul, a soul body. We are one. but We, are, we have that dualistic nature because we're made in the image of God so as you read that text, there's, there's a beauty there when God creates humanity. If you look at verse 27, I it said it's a separate stanza. Scholars say that's to indicate that God's creation of humanity happens in song. Verse 27, it's a song, it's a poem, meaning it carries more emotional weight, intellectual weight, more personal investment. He treats us and sees us differently from everything else in creation. So he's kind of, you know, making the building blocks of creation and then he takes out his really fine brush to make us. He he takes all, he, he puts down the hammer and, and the screwdriver and whatever else, and then he begins to take the most fine-tuned elements of his creative work and begins fashioning us together. That's why we're superior and separate from the rest of creation in terms of our design, but also in terms of our, in terms of our purpose as well. And by the way, purpose and design always go together. What something's purpose is always is connected to its design. So God created us different from the animal kingdom. Therefore, we have a different purpose from the animal kingdom. God says that he created us with the purpose and the calling to have dominion over the creation. Verse 26 and 28. We rule it. We cultivate it. We develop it. We fill it to be a regent on God's earth. It's basically to take the raw material of everything in our reality and to be to it what God was at the beginning. So basically all of us being made in the image of God, God says, I have wired you in a certain way that I want you to take the raw materials of this world and make, make, make this world a better place for people to live in and to show my glory in. So for example, maybe you um, are a teacher and your raw material are children who you are developing and, and bringing up and cultivating to be good uh, civilians one day and good family members, wives and husbands. Maybe you are a, uh, you work with computer tech, right? Or maybe you are in medicine. Your raw materials are code and chemistry. And you use those raw materials to create things and products, apps and medicines that bless people and help them. And that brings honor and glory to God when you do that. For me as a pastor, my raw material are you guys, okay? And Microsoft Word. Microsoft Word is my raw material, right? I use a lot of Microsoft Word. But that's a sense We all have raw material that God has blessed us and called us to bring together, to, to, to cultivate, to develop, to bring up to God as an offering of worship. Secularism has a completely different view on our purpose. See, secularism starts with, well, because there is no God, Humans are fundamentally like everything else in creation, in design and purpose, which means humans are just organic material, just like ants and dolphins and trees. We just have a bigger cerebral cortex and we got some opposable thumbs. And That's what makes us superior. If we don't have a different design, we don't have a different purpose, which means our main purpose, if there is no God, is to just survive and do what's best for me. Take as many resources as I can, take all the opportunities as I can with whatever means necessary to maximize my own personal quality of life. It's necessarily self-centered. There is no objective uh, purpose. It's very fatalistic. Only the Christian view of humanity promotes one that is one where humans have in, inherent dignity and objective meaning. I, we know what our purpose in life is and we know who we are. And then finally, there's a third way that, makes, that God makes humanity unique, separate from, uh, special from the rest of his creation. And that is a crucial separation from our work. It's Sabbath. The Sabbath. It's a call to rest. See, God, God creates six days, and then on the seventh day, he rests. Because he's tired, because he's exhausted. No, he's, he's, he's showing an example for us and to be made in his image. What he's doing here is he's calling us to work six days, to rest on a seventh day, and it's a call to separate ourselves from our work. It's a reminder that we are not our work. We do not work like the animals. We are above the animals, Jesus said in Mark two twenty seven, the Sabbath, taking a day off, seventh day for rest, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, God did not give us this command to rest. It's just another thing to do to prove that we're good Christians and that we're doing the right thing. No, he's saying this is a gift. The Sabbath is a gift as a reminder that who you are is not what you do. Who you are is not about what you produce. Who you are is not where you climb the corporate ladder. You are not at the base level, your utility. You are not at the base level, your productivity. You are not any of those things. Your worth and your work are not connected. And therefore, you can actually do your work better because your personal like sense of self is not on the line every time you go to the office. You're not working for your work. You work for God. Your work is just what you do. So it creates that separation. This is also why secular people do not Sabbath. Right at their most basic worldview, it says there is no separation between humanity and the rest of creation. And therefore, there is no separation between human dignity and utility or your worth and your work. But the Bible says God made humans separate from superior to creation. And the last one in our design, our purpose and and how we relate to our work and rest shows that we are different and shows that we have a separation from that is so important. So, Genesis 1, right? There is a lot there, okay? But three main things foundations, distinctions, separations. Again, how we think about the very beginning is the very beginning of how we think about everything else. And in the beginning, it all starts not, okay, with time, space, and matter, or even the creation. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. It all starts with God. And though we're only on the first page of the Bible, right? In the beginning, the very beginning, God. Even here, we can see the very beginning of everything else. God's story, who he is, why he did it, what his purpose is. See, interestingly, and I don't have time to really look at this, but the gospel of Mark, which we studied, if you've been in class with us for the past three months, all fall long, the gospel of Mark starts the same way as Genesis. It parallels the Genesis story with the story of Jesus trying to make a point. See, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Genesis starts with a completely new idea for the heavens and the earth. Mark starts with God doing something completely new in heaven and on earth. The parallels keep continuing. Genesis one verse two says what? The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right? That's how they began their creative work. Well, similarly, in the Gospel of Mark, right after verse one or so, what you have is Jesus is getting baptized. And at his baptism, you have the Spirit hovering over the waters of his baptism. In Genesis, it is God's inaugural sign of creation. In Mark, it is God's inaugural sign of Jesus's new creation that he's making. The the, the, the first words even of, of Genesis is, let there be light. The first words of Mark or this is my son. It's the same thing. The light of the world, you are my son, converge on Jesus Christ. The, The gospel writer John would actually look at both Genesis and Mark and create his own gospel where he says this about the beginning. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through Jesus. And without Jesus, not anything was made that was made. In Jesus was life, and in Jesus that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So, in other words, there was a reality before and behind in the beginning, and that was Jesus. In the beginning, in Genesis, Jesus is behind all of the creation of heaven and earth. In Mark, Jesus is at the beginning. To, to usher in a new creation, redeeming the creation that had fallen, which we're going to look at next week, the Great Fall. We live in a world, right? We know this, that is falling apart in many ways. It has faulty foundations, but even beyond the faulty foundations, the bedrock is because it doesn't have a right relationship with the very foundation, which is God as its creator and as its savior and as its Lord. And so, for the next six months, what we're going to be seeing is we're going to be tracing the story of God with the story of our world, and we're going to find ourselves and our story in that story as well and how they all come together. And it truly is, as Genesis shows, as the whole Bible shows, the only place where we find true answers and find true hope to all that we're looking for. Let's pray. Um, Lord, we're so grateful that um, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It gives us clarity about the things that are so important. It gives us a firm foundation to anchor our lives on. Um, God, we live in a world that is very confused, very dark. And um, Lord, I pray for each of us that we would be people who have a firm foundation that others who don't know you would see that and be drawn to you and be drawn to the hope and the truth that is in Christ. I pray this all in your name, amen.